Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 16. The word of God speaks to us. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's word to us. Speed of God. Thanks, Mallory. Hey, good morning, guys. It's good to see you. If we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. So good to be with you. Uh, hey, I want to I take just a second and explain why we did what we just did. Every week when you're, sh- when you're showing up here and after we get done singing and after we worship and giving and give announcements, there's that moment where we stand up to read the Word of God. And I just want to kind of explain why we do that. That is not uh, solely or only just as a sign of our respect for the Word of God, although I think that certainly is the case. It's not just our way of honoring Scripture, but more importantly, I think what's happening here is I want you to see this as a formational tool in your life. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our heart, our desire is to actually be people who don't stand on the Word and interpret our lives and our own desires and our own identities and all of that through our own lenses or our own way. But actually what we wanna be is people of the word of God who are underneath its authority. That what we're saying when we stand is saying, Jesus, by your grace, I want this to shape my life. I want this to shape my vision of the good life. I want this to shape my identity. I want this to shape who I am and how I see myself in this world. And so when you stand, I just wanna invite you, if you're a Christian, to do that as an act of prayer to God, saying, God, as we sit under your word today, would you shape us? Would you allow me to live underneath its authority? Does that make sense? So every week, that's what we do. We're doing this so that you can enter into the next six days of your week as people of the word that are saying, as best as we know how, here's our heart. We want to be underneath you. We want to be shaped by you. So um, again, thanks for being with us. Maybe you're here today and you're not sure that you want that. Maybe you have real questions about the word of God and we just say welcome to you. We're, we're so glad that you're here. We're honored by your presence with us today. Uh, you don't have to believe what we believe. Uh, you can be a part of this church and wrestle and ask good questions and just be around. And so welcome to you. We're glad that you're with us. Let me take a second and pray. If you have a Bible, go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to spend our time in 10 through 16. Chapter 2, 10 through 16. Father, thank you for today. Thank you that it's not just that I'm preaching the word. I'm actually under your word today too. And I don't 
assume that I have anything brilliant or helpful to share today. I'm just asking that you would move and speak. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would make this letter to the Corinthians 2,000 years ago become really real and helpful for us today. Would you meet us? Would you guide us? God, would you lead us into greater truth? Would you show us the beauty of your word? Pour out your Holy Spirit, and especially for my friends in the room that they just they don't know how to put words to what it is that they need from you in this season. Would you meet them with your love? Meet them with your concern? Meet them with your presence? In Jesus' name, amen. In his book, The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins summarizes his perspective of the message of Jesus dying on a cross like this. Vicious, sadomasochistic, and repellent. He goes on and he says, we should also dismiss the cross of Jesus as barking mad, but for its ubiquitous familiarity, which has dulled our objectivity. Those are some interesting words, but notice what he goes on to say. If God wanted to forgive our sins, why not just forgive them without having himself tortured and executed in payment? Now, Richard Dawkins is arguably one of the most brilliant people alive today. Uh, He's got his PhD from Oxford to prove it. He has written multiple books. He literally travels around the world as sort of a philosopher to share insights and, and his version of wisdom with people. Thousands of people flock to hear him speak. He is a brilliant, brilliant man. And yet he looks at this message of Jesus dying on a cross and he says, oh yeah, that message, that's barking mad. Now, you may not have uh, atheists in your life that are angry. You may know some people who don't believe in the existence of God, or maybe you know people who they're just not sure what's really out there. They know that there's more than just atoms and neurons firing, but they don't really know what else is out there. My guess, though, is that you do know people, whether they say it as abrasively as he just said it. You probably know people or work with people or have friends in your life that would look at the message of Jesus and the cross and just go, yeah, I just don't believe it. I just don't buy it. Like, it doesn't seem very intelligent to me or it doesn't seem wise to me or it doesn't seem right. Or yeah, I just, I I can't get myself to believe that message. So here's the question, and this is a really important question. How was it that many of us in this room, not all of us, but many of us in this room, once were people that looked at the message of Jesus and the cross and didn't believe, and yet here we are today, many of us, and we're singing a song like this just a few minutes ago, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. How did we go from not believing to singing songs about Jesus and the cross? Or let's get a little bit more clear with our question. Imagine for a minute that your neighbor is not a follower of Jesus. Maybe that's real. Maybe your neighbor isn't a follower of Jesus. Why are you a Christian and he or she isn't? Is it because you're more brilliant? Is it because you're more educated? Is it because you are more spiritually attuned? You just naturally tend to see the things of God better. You're more spiritual than they are. Your family background, your history, your upbringing. I mean, why are you a Christian and your neighbor is not? 
Why? How, how do you explain that? Well, that question that we're asking right there, that we're wrestling with together right there, helps us to get into our text that Paul is looking at today in chapter 2 of, of 1 Corinthians. Now, here's the thing about this. I've said this just about every week, but it bears repeating, that the Corinthian church was dealing with some major problems, that the boundary lines between what was happening in the city and what was happening in the church had almost disappeared, and the church had started to look a lot like the city and not a lot like the people of God, that the ways of being in the world, the ways of thinking, the vision of the good life, the wisdom of the world had all crept in and made its way into the church, and now the Corinthians are starting to act just like the people in their city that don't love, obey, or follow Jesus. They're starting to act just like everybody else in the city that isn't a Christian. And specifically around this idea of wisdom and around this idea of being spiritual. You could summarize their problem like this. They started to believe that they had graduated from the Apostle Paul. Thanks, Paul, for telling us about Jesus. Thanks for planting this church. But now that I'm a Christian, we don't need you. In fact, I've got all this wisdom that our city is offering us, and, and, and I actually think that you're the problem. I actually think that we are more mature, we are more spiritual. They were using that phrase spiritual repeatedly, and you're going to see Paul kind of in a tongue-in-cheek way use that word and flip it on its head again and again today, because what was happening in the church was essentially this category, they had category, uh, sorry, they'd started to categorize people, there it is. Um, I think the, the loss of OU has got me all in my head last night, like it as all of us. Did you wake up in a funk today? Anyone else? Okay, just me. Yeah, that's probably why. I'll blame it on that. But they started to say, well, there's some people in our city that are lost. There's some people that are Christians. And then there's some of us that are really spiritual. We're just like way better than everybody else because we pray in tongues or because we have these gifts of the Holy Spirit or whatever. They'd started to categorize themselves as the spiritually elite in the church. Oh, you're just a Christian, but I'm super spiritual. That's what's happening inside of this letter. So Paul is going to take them to task on that issue. Now, in light of that, what Paul has been doing is developing a theme here that it's easy to miss, but he wants to say that, yeah, actually our world is divided, but it's divided down a totally different way. There are categories of people, but it's not three categories, it's only two. Go to chapter one, verse 18, and notice what he says. He says, for the word of the cross is what? It's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So here's what you have. You have the word of the cross, to some people is folly, and to other people it's the power of God. And the, the, the two categories of people that Paul introduces us to, you have people who are saved, and you have people who are perishing. You have people who are saved and people who are perishing. And the way that you know which category you belong to is your reaction and your response to Jesus and the cross. If you look at the cross of Jesus and you say, that's barking mad, then it's because it's folly to those who are perishing. If you look at the cross and you go, that's beautiful, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen, I want to build my life on that, it's because you are being saved. So there's two categories of people, not three. You have people who are perishing and you have people who are saved. Now, what Paul's going to do today is broaden that a little bit, and he's going to give another set of words to talk about this, two other sets of words to describe this reality. Not more categories, just the same categories with different words. Go to chapter 2 and look at verse 14. He says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Just like the cross is folly, 
The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But look at this in verse 15. The spiritual person, on the other hand, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Now, we'll unpack that verse more in just a minute, but suffice it to say that you have two categories of people. You have those who are perishing and those who are saved. And then in chapter two, he broadens it out and he says, in fact, what you have is you have natural people who are perishing and you have spiritual people who are being saved. You have natural people who are driven by the wisdom of this world, who are actually animated animated by the spirit of this age. Then you've got spiritual people who are driven by the wisdom of God and are actually animated by the Holy Spirit. So, so in other words, two categories of people, like you can define everybody in the world, everyone that exists in our planet today basically has two reactions and two responses. You have one person that looks at God, that looks at Jesus, that looks at the cross, that looks at the teachings of Jesus, the ethics of Jesus, and says, that's folly. That's silly, that's dumb, that's repressive, that's dangerous, that's unhelpful, that's wrong. And then you have other people that look at Jesus, the cross, the teachings of Jesus, the ethics of Jesus, and they say, yes, that's true, that's good, that's beautiful, that's wise. I want to build my life on that. People who are perishing and people who are saved, people who are natural and people who are spiritual. How did that happen? How did our world get divided down this line of natural versus spiritual? Well, here's what I want you to see. This was not God's original intention. His original intention when he created humanity was not to have categories of people of natural and spiritual. And so here's what I want to do. I want to go way, way back, all the way back to Genesis 2 and show you God's original plan. So if you're taking notes, here's the first thing. The transition from spiritual to natural. And this is the story of our spiritual death. Genesis chapter two, here's what it says. Notice something interesting here. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils, what? The breath of life. And that man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So friends, here's what's being described here, that actually in the beginning, God's plan was not to have categories of natural and spiritual, but in the beginning, he only wanted one category, which was you were spiritually alive to God. Anytime you see this word life, especially in Genesis 1, 2, or 3, it means more than breath in your lungs. When, when God breathed into this man the breath of life and he became a living being, it's not describing that Adam was able to uh, breathe in oxygen. That's not what's being described here. It's so much more than that. It's talking about that this man became spiritually alive to God, that he was able to be attuned to God, to walk with God in the garden, to know God and be known by God, to to love God and have God love him in response, to, to enjoy the presence of God as we were designed to experience and enjoy God. And in the middle of this, what God does is he places two trees. There's the tree of life, And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, a lot of people wonder, like, are these real trees? If so, what type of fruit? I'm not saying those questions don't matter, but that's not the point of the story. These trees represent two approaches to life. The tree of life is representing this way that you and I can live as humans where we're living in dependence on God 
reliance on God. We're putting ourselves in submission to God's authority, that we're actually putting ourselves as saying, God, your way is wise, my way is not. Your way is good, I would err apart from you. So the tree of life is our way of saying, I want to trust you, I want to follow you, I want to obey you, I want to submit to you. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on the other hand, is representing another way to live, which is to say, actually, God, I think that your way is not wise. I think my way is wise. I think that your way is folly, and I know better. I think that you're holding out on me, and I think that I could make a better God. I would rather me define my own right and wrong and good and evil for myself, and rather than living in dependence and reliance on you, I'm going to branch out, and I'm going to become something you didn't intend, and I will be my own person and, and, and have the final say on my life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One is going to lead to life, and one is going to lead, tragically, to death. And you know the rest of the story. I don't need to unpack this. But the rest of the story is that Adam and Eve, they actually reject God and his wisdom and his way. And they choose to embrace the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They choose to live a life saying, I'm wiser than God. God doesn't know what he's talking about. I'll just define good and evil for myself. C.S. Lewis, in his amazing book, Mere Christianity, he, de- he defines it like this. He says, what Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was the idea that they could be like gods, could set up on their own as if they'd created themselves, be their own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money and poverty Ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Friends, here's all the point of that backstory. This was the moment when we went from being spiritually alive to spiritually dead. Rather than being alive to God, aware of God, in love with God, trusting God, following God. This was the moment in our human story where you and I became marred and tainted and deformed by sin. Now, every person that's ever lived since is born bent towards sin. There's not one part of you, not inside or out, not head to toe, that is not touched and marred by sin. Your soul, your loves, your desires, your mind, your intellect, your education, your desires, your hopes, your dreams, your gender, your sexuality, all of it, every single thing about you has been touched by sin in such a way that you and I naturally, left to ourselves, are bent away from God towards our own wisdom. We're bent away from life towards our own destruction. We're bent away from what he values as good and true and beautiful towards, hey, you don't know best, I do. I'll just do my own thing. Thank you very much. This is what you and I are bent towards. And this is the idea that Paul's describing here when he talks about the natural man or the natural person. He's saying to be natural is just to be dead in sin. It's to be apart from God. It's to be separated from God. And this is the story of every single person were it not for the grace of Jesus. And you know the story. The rest of the story of the, of the Bible is basically God saying, I'm not going to give up on you. Like you chose to become dead. You chose to be natural and not spiritual. You chose to live a life inside of dysfunction and destruction, but I'm not going to give up on you. And so repeatedly God reaches out to his people. He draws them back. He moves and works. He sends himself through all these signs and wonders and miracles saying, I want to be your God. I want you to be my people again and again and again. And he's 
culminating all of the story ultimately in the sending of his son, Jesus. And that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is our transition from the natural back to the spiritual. And this is the story of our spiritual life. The New Testament opens with the story about Jesus. And as the Apostles' Creed essentially defines it, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried, descended to the dead, but on the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. That is the message of Christianity. That is what we believe. And friends, here's what's so crazy. The Apostle Paul trots into Corinth with that message, Jesus and the cross, and he begins to herald that, proclaim that. We looked at this last week. The foolishness of this message and all, he just heralds Jesus and the cross and what starts to happen in Corinth? People who are natural, they start to come alive to God again. They go from natural to spiritual just by this message of Jesus and the cross. All of a sudden now a church is birthed in Corinth and a ton of people have gone from being natural people to being spiritual again. How crazy is that? But here's what's really bizarre, and this is the million-dollar question. How did they make the turn? How did they go from being natural to spiritual? Why did other people in the city of Corinth look at the message of the cross and go, I still think it's folly? How was it that there was a division of people still when the gospels preached that some believed and some didn't? Some saw it as brilliance and wisdom and the power of God, and some said, that's barking mad. How? Well, that question leads us to verse 10, and notice what Paul says in verse 10. These things God has revealed to us, how? Through the Spirit. This is the answer to the question. Friends, the only factor, the only reason that any of us are spiritually alive today, the only reason that some of you are in this room singing songs where we love Jesus and we love the gospel and we love the cross and we're building our life on it is not because we were more mature or more godly or more spiritually attuned or had our ducks in a row or came from a special type of family or whatever. The only reason is that when we were dead in our sins, the grace of God through the Holy Spirit made our heart come alive. That's it. If you love Jesus today, you can only blame slash thank the Holy Spirit for that. You can't thank your own wisdom, your own brilliance, your own intelligence. He revealed it to you through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is driving at in this text today. A church that thinks of themselves as super mature, super wise, super godly, super spiritual, and Paul is basically knocking them down a few notches and going, actually, the only reason you are even a Christian is because of the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, let's talk about the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that when most Christians who are familiar with their Bibles think about the Holy Spirit— and think about the book of 1 Corinthians or the letter of 1 Corinthians, they tend to go towards, oh, chapters 12 through 14. That's where Paul talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Cool things like prophecy and tongues and miracles and healing and all these great things that he's going to talk about. And friends, I think those are all awesome and great too, and we're going to talk about them in like 47 years when we get to chapter 12. But did you know that if you were to ask the question, where is the Holy Spirit mentioned the most in the book of 1 Corinthians? It's actually not in chapter 12 or 14. He's mentioned more times in chapter 2, 10 through 16, our text today, than he is in chapter 12, and twice as many times as he is in chapter 14. 
what that tells us is that while the Holy Spirit loves to bring about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, things like prophecy and tongues and miracles and healing and encouragement and all the gifts of the Spirit that we're going to look at in chapters 12 through 14, while the Spirit loves to work that, his primary role in the world is actually one of revelation. It's actually one of knowledge and discernment, taking something like the simple truth of Jesus and the cross and making it click in the lives and hearts of people. So with that in mind, let's talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's the first thing that I want you to see in our text today. The Holy Spirit reveals God to us. Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. I love this line. Think about this. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. All right, quick question. What am I thinking of right now? Ready, go. This <laughs> fried chicken. You're in the nine o'clock. I'm actually not thinking about fried chicken. Uh, in the nine o'clock service, someone shouted out McAllister's, and I'm actually thinking about my utter hatred for McAllister's right now. That's what I'm thinking about. Um, and, and more importantly, I'm thinking about how my foot hurts while I'm standing up on it. I was walking around the neighborhood yesterday and uh, didn't have shoes on, and I think I stepped on a piece of glass. I thought I got most of it out, but maybe there's still some in there. It hurts right now. That's what I'm thinking of. How would you know that? You wouldn't know that. In fact, the person in this room who knows me the most is my wife, and even she has to at times turn to me and go, what are you thinking right now? Why is that? Because no one can know the person's thoughts except for the person themselves, the spirit of the person. It's like, I know what I'm thinking because I'm me, and I can hear what I'm thinking in my own head. You can't know that. If that's true of me as a mere human being, imagine God where his ways and his thoughts are so much higher and more brilliant and beyond and complicated, how can we know who God is? How can we know what God is like? How can we understand God? You could be the smartest person on earth. You could have gone to the most prestigious university. You could have studied for years and years and years, and no amount of learning or you having human brilliance is going to get you any closer to knowing who God is. Vaughn Roberts says it this way. He says, The world in its wisdom has split the atom, put men on the moon, and created artificial intelligence, but it cannot tell us what God is like or how we can know him. So how do we know God? Well, the text says it. The Holy Spirit takes the thoughts of God and reveals those thoughts of God to us. In other words, God reveals God through the Holy Spirit, who is God. The only way we can know God is because God shows up from outside of us and says, this is who I am. This is what I love. This is what I hate. This is what I, this is what I think is wise and good and true. This is what isn't. This is the way to life. This is the way to death. The only way we can know God and any of that is through the Holy Spirit. And the Bible talks about different ways that the Holy Spirit reveals God to us. Uh, he, he reveals God to us through creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? So you look at a mountain or you look at the ocean, or for those of us in Oklahoma, bless our heart, we look at the beautiful sunsets, right? And we go, those are beautiful sunsets. And they really are. Some people just go, those are beautiful sunsets. Others of us go, God is amazing. He's revealing himself. He's brilliant. He's beautiful. He's in control. He's phenomenal. Like, look at what he's done. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, the Holy Spirit reveals God to us through Scripture, 
says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, that the scriptures are breathed out by God. It's the Holy Spirit himself that's taking the word of God and revealing it to us. The only way we can know the thoughts and heart and intentions of God, it's through his word. It drives me crazy when Christians go, well, you know, the Holy Spirit told me, fill in the blank. And it's like, well, yeah, but he told you something else in the Bible, you dummy. So like, he didn't tell you what you just think he said because he said it here and he's not gonna say something different. It's like the Holy Spirit has spoken to us. You want to know what God loves, what he likes, who he's like? Read scripture, and the Holy Spirit is revealing God to us through scripture. And then it says this in Hebrews chapter 1, that ultimately the Holy Spirit reveals God to us through the person and work of Jesus. That long ago he's spoken in many ways through his prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. You want to know what God's like? Look at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and see his generosity. Look at the way he forgives sin. Look at his gentleness. Look at his compassion. Look at the way he loves to be near the brokenhearted and he finds people that culture pushed out and he loves them and brings them. That's what God is like. Look at Jesus. The Holy Spirit reveals God to us. None of us would even know God apart from the Holy Spirit. Second thing I want you to see, the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the gospel. Look at verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, Notice the play on words. We haven't received the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Verse 13 is huge. He says, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. In other words, that when Paul entered Corinth, we talked about this last week, it wasn't his eloquence, his intelligence, his brilliance, that was the persuasive factor for some people going from natural to spiritual. What was it? It was the Holy Spirit of God just making this message of the gospel come alive in people's lives. And I joked about this last week, but it bears repeating again, that if any of you became a Christian in the 90s or early 2000s like I did, we know it's only because of the Holy Spirit. Because there was some wonky stuff that was happening in the name of evangelism and in the name of mission. And most of us had a Sunday school teacher that like gave us a mediocre half-baked truth of the gospel anyway. And somehow the Holy Spirit used that to make our dead heart come alive to God. So it doesn't matter how good you are at articulating it. It doesn't matter how learned you are. It matters that the Holy Spirit just takes the message of the gospel and makes it come alive in your heart. That's what he loves to do. The only reason you love Jesus and have believed the gospel to be true and beautiful is because of him. Charles Spurgeon, who always said things the best, said this very well. He said, one weeknight, I love this, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it, right? So here Charles Spurgeon is, he's sitting in church, and he's bored. This joker up here talking doesn't know what he's talking about. Some of you are like, I can relate to that feeling. And then notice what he goes on to say. The thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I. But then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all. 
and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Friends, when was the last time that you just sat and realized, I'm only sitting here wanting to follow Jesus because of the grace of the Holy Spirit to reveal this to be true to me? When was the last time you just been like, this is unbelievable. I know tons of people that look at this message and think it's foolish. Somehow I came to believe it's not because I'm better than them. The Holy Spirit made this alive in my heart. Unbelievable. That leads me to the third thing I want you to see. The Holy Spirit makes people spiritual. He's the one who makes people spiritual. Look at verse 14. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now remember, Paul's dealing with a, a church that has hijacked the term spiritual. Oh, you don't pray in tongues, you're not spiritual. Oh, you don't have this level of Sophia, Greek word for wisdom like I do. You're not as spiritual. Oh, you don't believe in this doctrine or theology like I've come to believe. You're not as spiritual as me. In other words, they were seeing like, well, there's the lost, then there's Christians, then there's the really spiritual Christians. And Paul goes, eh, none of that's true. Actually, there's only natural people and there's only spiritual people. What makes someone spiritual? Not their maturity as a Christian, not how long they've been following Jesus, not the books they've read, not the stuff they know. The only thing that makes a person spiritual is the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, congratulations, you are spiritual. And this is actually really encouraging, especially to those of you that struggle and you're like, I'll never be as good as fill in the blank or, you know, God is so disappointed. Listen, you are spiritual in the eyes of God. He has given you the Holy Spirit. Like, you're on the team. There's only one team. There's only one jersey. You're wearing it. You have the Holy Spirit. You don't have to be following Jesus for 50 years. You don't have to have read all the books or know all the stuff. If you love Jesus, if your heart is alive to, alive to God, you have the Holy Spirit. You're spiritual. And this is really powerful in a culture that loves to say something like, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Have you heard that? I'm a spiritual person, but not religious. But what's funny is Paul would look at that person and go, no, you're religious, but you're not spiritual. Like you have some mechanism of belief, even if you don't believe in organized religion and you put yourself at the top of your authority structure, you still have some mechanized, you know, organized way of living. You're just religious, but you're not spiritual. If you have the Holy Spirit, you're spiritual. That's amazing. And that leads me to the last thing. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens up our eyes to ultimate reality to ultimate reality. Paul says something in verse 14 that's very confusing, but when you get to see it, it's beautiful. Look at what he says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Pause there. The natural person looks at the teaching about Jesus, the cross, Jesus' teaching, his ethics, and goes, that's ridiculous. The natural person does that. They're not able to understand it. Uh, what Richard Dawkins said at the beginning of the sermon about the cross being barking mad, he's not able to understand it, even though he's one of the most brilliant people alive today. Look at verse 15. The spiritual person, however, judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now, real quickly, 
Paul is not saying that if you have the Holy Spirit, no human is allowed to judge you. In fact, that's a horrible distortion of what Paul's saying. That type of mentality is the very thing that Paul is pressing against in this letter with the Corinthians because they're going, we're the really spiritual people and we're gonna judge you, Paul. And Paul's flipping that on its head. So if you think because you have the Holy Spirit that you don't need anyone else in your life and no one else can judge you, you're gonna, like Paul's gonna actually blow that concept up in a couple of chapters from now. I think there's a, a way to understand this and some other translations help us. So here's how the CSB says verse 15. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. Or the NIV says it this way, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. So here's the best way I know how to define what Paul is saying here. What he's saying in verse 15 is that something dramatic and powerful has happened when we went from being natural people to spiritual people that now all of a sudden we're able to look at the wisdom of the world, quote unquote, and the wisdom of God and actually judge and assess and understand both of those things. Whereas the person who is just natural can only know the wisdom of this world and they can't judge anything. They don't know what it's like to be made alive in God and see reality as we are supposed to be seeing reality. So here's, here's a, an example of this. Um, I'm gonna date myself here, but there was a movie that came out in 1999, maybe you've seen it, called The Matrix. Anybody remember this? Of course you remember it. <laughs> Some of you are like, don't spoil it for me. I was gonna go home and watch it today. Well, I'm going to spoil it for you. You've had 23 years. You're going to go to Blockbuster on your way home today and watch The Matrix? Okay, so it, there's a scene in the movie, you remember this, where Morpheus holds out to Neo two pills, a blue pill and a red pill. He says, hey, listen, you've now seen something about what the real world is like. It's not what you think. There's some shocking truths out there. If you choose to take the blue pill, life is going to go back to normal. You can continue on in comfortable ignorance without ever knowing anything about ultimate reality. You'll just live in the pretend world for the rest of your life. But if you take the red pill, your eyes are going to be open. You will be exposed to real reality. You'll see the world as it really is, and it will change everything, right? That's essentially what happens in the movie. What Paul is saying in verse 15 is sort of like that. He's saying when the Holy Spirit moved on our heart, it's like now all of a sudden, all of the wisdom structures of our world, every bit of the world's uh, vision of the good life, oh, you want to find pleasure? Well, it's found here. Just do this or fill in the blank this or you know, pursue this way of life and you'll get pleasure. Now those of us who are followers of Jesus go, the only true thing is Jesus and his kingdom. That's it. The only real way to live is to bank your hope on Jesus. Everything else is a farce. Everything else is a sham. Nothing else actually gives you what you think it's gonna give you. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. It's just Jesus. That's what happens when the Holy Spirit makes your heart alive is now you get to see ultimate reality for what it is and you are able to judge everything accurately as opposed to just living in the pretend world. That's what God is doing through the Holy Spirit. Now, let me wrap this up with two questions and we'll be done. Why is Paul saying this to the Corinthian church then? Why is he going on and on about the natural and the spiritual and how the only reason you guys are followers of Jesus is because of the Holy Spirit. And, and what does this have to do with us today? Well, real briefly, the reason Paul is saying this to them then is because remember, this is a church absolutely divided 
over pride and arrogance and who is better and who their teachers are. And what Paul is doing is he's lovingly coming to them and he's going, hey guys, you actually think you're spiritual. You actually think you're mature. You actually think that you're incredibly wise. The only reason you even know Jesus at all and see the cross as beautiful is because of the Holy Spirit revealing that to you. He's lowering them down. He's humbling them to show them that all of their weird divisions that they've created don't make sense because the world is already divided of those who are perishing and those who are being saved, those who have the Spirit and those who don't. And the only reason they're in the second category is because of the Spirit's work in their life. So he's actually gonna talk about this. We'll look at it next week where he talks about these divisions and how it makes no sense given their story. And here's what I think it does for us today. There's a lot of ways that we could apply this, but let me just give you two of them real briefly. The first is, I think that you and I as followers of Jesus probably need like a really good dose of humility. Like we need a really good dose of humility from time to time because, and the reason you know you're in a place where you need to be humbled is when you've stopped being uh, filled with gratitude for your own salvation story. Whenever you've stopped turning to God and gone, thank you, God, that I even know you and love you, it's because over time you started to believe the lie that you have somehow done something that's like put you on the team. That you've some, somehow like in your brilliance or in your wisdom, you've arrived at a level that's superior to other people. And I think this text actually just in a loving, gracious, God-honoring way humbles us all down where we're able to look at one another and go, isn't it amazing that you and I are followers of Jesus? I mean, isn't it amazing that like we actually deserve the wrath of God? We deserve to be pushed out into utter darkness. We deserve, we deserve to be undone, but on the cross, Jesus got the wrath of God in my place. That on the cross, Jesus was thrown into outer darkness. That on the cross, Jesus was undone so that I could be made into a new creation. Isn't it amazing that God would rather sacrifice himself in Christ than see you and I far from God? What did we do to deserve this? The Holy Spirit has made our heart alive. So today at some point, just to sit over your lunch or to sit over a fun memory or to sit over any time today when you have a smile uh, on your face or you laugh at a joke or whatever, just to go, I'm a Christian because of the grace of God. And that leads me to the second thing. While I was preparing for the sermon, I just had the sense that God might highlight in you and in me some family and friends, people that we know that we really do love that are far from God. And for a long time, we've just kind of written them off as too far gone. And actually, this text reminds us that nobody's too far gone because all of us were already dead. You can't get more far gone than dead. Dead is as far gone as you can get. So that th think of a person right now that you love. Maybe it's a child, a family member, a friend, a coworker and you love this person, and they're far from God today, they're actually not too far gone. The Holy Spirit of God, like that, can make their heart come alive.